Uh, I'm really looking forward to tonight. We're going to be talking about uh, Genesis 3, so I hope you're still there, because I find Genesis 3 to be one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. Uh, It's not by accident that we get this chapter in the first part of the Bible, because actually it contains pretty much the whole story of the Bible in a nutshell, if you will. Um, but before we get there, I was thinking about this. I was, I was preparing this week's message that I already know, and this is going to be a very morbid thought, and you, so just get ready, um, that I already know one of the memories that my family is going to share about me when they memorialize my life at my funeral. <laughs> and that's a very weird thing to say, but I already know because I was notorious for going really fast and not being careful when I went fast. And I was notorious, yes, in my home, and if my parents are watching right now, they'll be chuckling at this, that I was notorious for going up the stairs very fast. Too fast, so much so that oftentimes they would hear this grunt in the hallway because they knew that I had fallen up the stairs. Uh, I was... I was pretty famous for that. <laughs> um, it's a very embarrassing thing to do uh, because um, if you didn't know this, um, let me kind of give you some insight. <laughs> uh, you are conditioned, this is something that your brain does automatically, to look at stairs and judge the approximate height uh, of, what, of how high you need to put your foot in order to take those stairs gracefully. We'll say it that way. <laughs> uh, you don't think about this Consciously, It just happens subconsciously. Your brain's like, bam, I can do these stairs. It just happens. It's a reaction. It's a natural thing, even though you're kind of not aware of it. It's all these mathematics are going on inside of your head each time you come to a staircase, which is kind of pretty cool. Uh, all these things are happening at once, unless, of course, like me, you go too fast. <laughs> You don't have time to sort of judge or carefully, uh, accurately uh, take those stairs with grace. And so what happens then is something that should be very routine quickly becomes sort of uh, actually very humiliating. (laughs) And I know because uh, I've experienced it. (laughs) Uh, I I think it's interesting how falling down the stairs um, is something that we is generally considered excusable. It's something that triggers sympathy. If you see someone fall downstairs, I don't know, maybe you laugh, but you're a pretty mean person if you do. But uh, at first, probably you want to go and make sure they're healthy and okay, and then maybe you laugh at them. Uh, but if you fall up the stairs, there's no compassion. There's no like sympathy for that person. It's it's all humorous. It's all laughter. It's all just stifled uh, laughter as if someone is uh, not being careful and falling up the stairs. And so, anyways, that's a really rambling introduction to what I want, I want to talk about because it, even though it might seem silly, it might seem a little humorous, it might seem a little bit <laughs> that we're making something light of something serious, I think all of us, if you were to boil down Genesis 3, it's... Mankind falling up the stairs. <laughs> it's mankind's, uh, we could call it an upward fall. And this is a fall, as we, is often called, that we often know is the, is the cause of all the brokenness that we see. We were kind of hinting at that in this morning's message, that if you look at uh, news outlets, if you look at various places online or various places in the news, uh, you can see a lot of brokenness on display, tragedy, terror, heartache, all these things that we witness, all the griefs that we take into our eyes and into our minds, we know it's the result of that very ignominious fall that we read about here in this chapter. 
the, the, the fall of the garden. And ever since that moment, we've been dealing with the consequences when our representatives, our very first representatives, Adam and Eve, we could say, face-planted into the holiness of God. And this is, I think, what's happening here. They're falling up the stairs to heaven, so to speak. And there they, they stumble into a place where they had no business being. And yet what's so fascinating to me about this chapter is that unlike us, thankfully, when our first parents stumble up the stairs, they're not met with, with laughter or more humiliation. Actually, God himself has a very different response. So let's go there. Genesis 3 again. Like I said, I think this is the most important chapter. And actually, there's the, the modern notion to sort of jettison uh, the Old Testament, but specifically most or some of Genesis is completely ludicrous to me because if you don't have Genesis 3, the rest of the Bible doesn't make sense. The rest of the Bible is just a bunch of stories and a bunch of fairy tales. Genesis 3 is the Bible in a nutshell. It shows what our condition was and what our condition is now and why there's that big massive shift in that condition but also too it shows us what I love here and what I hope to draw out this evening is the very character of God that instead of jettisoning us and totally casting us off he comes to where we are Genesis 3 is that story of Adam and Eve's fall we could say They're given a clear command. Go to chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. You are probably familiar with these verses. It's the command of God exactly of what Adam specifically was supposed to do in the garden. And the Lord God commanded the man, Adam, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die." They are given this very clear ordinance of of what's supposed to go on. And of course, we know that Adam was also given the charge to uh, tend the garden, to work it, to keep it. He was essentially a priest, we could say, in the temple of Eden. We don't often think of it that way, but that's essentially what Adam is doing. Adam and Eve are essentially the first priests that God ordains to minister and tend in his temple, as we know, that is called Eden. And of course, after uh, Eve is coming to the side of Adam, we know that he, uh, she, excuse me, is the one who is first uh, in sort of seduced by the serpent. Go to verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. This, of course, are very familiar verses to us, uh, recounting the ways in which Eve, uh, the woman, was deceived. 
We could actually spend so much time on many of these little details in there. There's several things we could unpack. Uh, we don't have necessarily time tonight. But uh, there, uh, one thing that I find so interesting is the way that Satan, the serpent here, uh, sort of is undercutting the word of God. How he casts doubt on it and twists it and how he makes it into something that it's not. Even though it sounds so accurate. And I think ever since this very moment, he's been casting doubt on things that God has said. That's how he gets in. That's how he sort of weasels his way. Or we could actually probably perhaps fit more fitting in this particular chapter. He slithers his way into our faith and into our belief systems and gets us to doubt the things that God has said. Such as what he did, does here with Eve And it gets her to actually make that interesting statement where she's now adding to the scriptures. God never said that no one should touch the tree. And yet she adds to it and says, neither shall we touch it. Adding to what God has said. And then the temptation is so fascinating to me. And we'll get there in a moment. And of course we know that Adam promptly follows suit. As Eve falls, as she is deceived... Adam is there and goes along with her. Verse number six. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also to her husband with her. And he did eat. And then their eyes are opened, as it says in verse seven. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. This this moment sends a shockwave through God's created order. (laughs) They, they break the fabric of their relationship with their creator. And now they, uh, as it says there, their eyes are opened and they're aware of their shame. And for, for the first time in all of human history in this very moment, they feel shame. They feel that, that anguish and they feel that hurt. And so they hide themselves. That guilt causes them to go deeper into the garden to see if they can hide themselves from their beloved father. We have to pause, I think. To get our mind's eye on the severity of this. We, I think this is perhaps in Christian circles. This is one of those passages that's so familiar that we just kind of read through it. Because what I think is so interesting is that as first glance their sin appears to be a matter of simple disobedience. Don't eat of that tree or else you'll have to suffer the consequences. And they do. They eat of that tree, and so they're going to suffer the consequences. It seems like a matter of simple disobedience. Here's a rule. Don't do this thing, and they go and do it. <laughs> this, it appears that way, a simple command that they wanted to break. But I would say that the, the fall, as we properly understand it, isn't so simple, precisely because I think the, the scope and the scale of the fall is way vaster, if that's a word, way more vast, way more comprehensive than we at first think, precisely because sin isn't just doing wrong. 
Sin isn't just doing something bad, because if that were the case, then what would you need to correct that? Just better behavior. If sin was just doing bad things, then you could just nullify that by doing good things. You could just have this easy sort of tit-for-tat relationship there where if you just do better things than the things that you have been doing, then you'll kind of erase the wrong things that you have been doing for a while. That's not what's going on. Because even deeper than just Adam and Eve uh, sort of being deceived and taking of this fruit that they were strictly told and explicitly told not to partake of, Deeper than that, they're fracturing their very fellowship and relationship with their creator. That's what sin is. It's a a fracture of the very created order and design of God. And in fact, there's a great little example of this that I want to get to in just a moment. I I like to say it's this. (laughs) It's celestial insurrection. Which is a big way of saying it's a reversal and a rebellion on God's order and design for all things. Notice Genesis 1.1. The very first words of the Bible are ones we are, again, familiar with. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. There's so, so much happening here in just these verses. Other ways you could translate that, there was this, this formless void, as it says there, this without form and void and all this darkness. There was chaos, there was cacophony in the vast cosmos, and God brought it into order. You, with a word, he made the earth, he made structure, he made order. Notice... Go with me to Jeremiah verse or chapter number four, because there's an interesting, if you will, commentary on what sin does here uh, that is comes to the surface by what this prophet has to say about sin and evil and wrongdoing. Notice Jeremiah f- chapter four, verse 22. Jeremiah the prophet says, For my people is foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish children, and they have none understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. You see what he's doing here? (laughs) He's trying to raise the bar of what it means when mankind sort of goes his own way and breaks that relationship with God. It's not just a matter of doing something bad, doing something naughty. No, Johnny, don't take the cookies. It's breaking a relationship. And here, Jeremiah, I think, is getting at it's fracturing God's created order. You're undoing his creative design when we uh, go our own way and choose to, uh, choose to plunge ourselves into sin. And this is, again, is what our first parents have done, Adam and Eve. They were given that strict command and given that strict order, and the, they were given freedom in that strictness. That's what is so amazing, 
They were given the freedom to live and to fellowship with their father, and yet they fractured that relationship. They failed in their priestly duties there in the Garden of Eden. And that, which we know is very good, as God deems it in chapter 1, as he goes through and calls this thing good and this thing good, and then at the end he says it is all very good. You notice by chapter 2, and, or excuse me, by chapter 3, it, it, he calls that same ground that he called good is now cursed. Sin had fractured it, had polluted it, had corrupted, and all the things that were very good are now a curse because of this sin, this insurrection on behalf of Adam and Eve. And where once they fellowshiped in God's Favor, this undivided, perfect favor of God, they now felt the heat of his wrath. Notice verse 9. And the Lord, back in Genesis 3, excuse me. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to me to to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above all every beast of the field. And upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And then he lays down some curses. Verse 16, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow. In thy conception, in sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it, shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of thy face Shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Heavy stuff. The fracture of this relationship leads to all of these horrible ends. And while their, their fellowship was broken, where once they had all of this harmonious conversation and beautiful relationship between them and the God who is three in one, there existed now a great gulf. As we know at the end of the chapter, God expels them out of the garden. And ever since... We could say that every person who's ever lived has been dealing with the fallout of the fall. <laughs> we've been dealing with this fallout where we know we've been created for something deeper, vaster. Again, there's that word, <laughs> vaster than us. And yet we try and fill it with something else. I, I wasn't going to read this verse, but I'll read it again because it's so impactful if you don't have to go there, but just mark it in your Bibles. We made a big deal about this when we were going through the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says this. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he hath, he hath set the world in their heart. 
So that no man can find out the work of God that God maketh, excuse me, from the beginning to the end. That phrase is so important. He has set the world in man's heart. Man was created for eternity. Man feels that longing and that yearning. We could say that man feels the longing of going back to Eden. And yet anyone in their, uh, anyone who is perhaps not in the church wouldn't know that terminology. But that's what they're looking for. They're, they're seeking for something settling. Something that can return them back to the peace of Eden. Yet they're looking for it in a bunch of thousands of different things. That will always fail them. That will always lead them to a sort of horrible ends. It's the fallout from the fall. So again, this failure, the fall, as we've often referred to this chapter, is not just a result of disobedience. It's... The disobedience is sort of the byproduct of their first fall. Because notice their temptation going back to verse 5 of Genesis 3. For God, the serpent says, doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened. And ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. These are the alluring words of the serpent. He beguiles them and seduces them, not with some very horrible sort of uh, the effects of sin. (laughs) He tells them, you will be like God. This, This tree holds the secrets of the world. It holds the secrets of deity, Adam and Eve. Eat of it, and then you will be just like God is. You will have all of the knowledge right at your fingertips. Without a thought, that's what they do. (laughs) They eat from that tree. And notice they're not seduced by some grit or grimy passion. They're seduced by the glamour of being like God. They weren't tempted by the serpent to go downward. They're actually tempted to go upwards, to go into places that they weren't supposed to be. They were tempted by enlightenment and awareness that of this sort of knowledge that was beyond them, that this something that they needed that they didn't already have. It's this suggestion that being like God, it just sounded too good to them. And so they ate. And this is where they fall up the stairs. (laughs) They're falling up the stairs to heaven, to glory, we could say. I like how this one writer, this is sort of where we can get that phrase. This one guy, he says it like this, quote, Adam and Eve fell into sin. The fall is not really what the word implies at all. It is not a downward plunge to some lower level in the great chain of being, some lower rung on the ladder of morality and freedom. Rather, it is an upward rebellion, an invasion of the realm of things above, the usurping of divine prerogative. To retain traditional language, one would have to resort to an oxymoron and speak of an upward fall. I like the way that that guy terms it. It's upward rebellion. Adam and Eve given perfection in where they were. And yet they were tempted that there was something more. Something that they needed to satisfy them. Other than what they had already been given freely by God himself. 
that there was something missing, something that God couldn't provide. And in fact, the serpent's temptation is that actually God had been sort of conniving and had been withholding this from them. It, the serpent's temptation is that not just that they, sh- that, 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 they, that they could and they, they should partake of this, but actually that God didn't want them to and that he was making God out to be a liar. But I would say ever since this day, ever since that fateful day, we've all been falling upward, invading the divine and working to replace God. You see, that's the essence of sin. Not just doing something bad. You're replacing God. Saying, I don't need someone over me. I can be like God. I don't need someone telling me what to do. I can go out and make my own satisfaction. I can control my own little world. I can be like a God. And when we say that, when we choose that, when we choose those ends, we're doing exactly like what our first parents did. We are falling upwards. (laughs) This is the sense that we can save ourselves. We can sew our own fig leaves together. We can make our own coverings. We can deal with our guilt by ourselves. We can deal with our shame by things that we can forge and make and craft for ourselves. We don't need outside aid. We don't need someone helping us. We can do it by ourselves. For all of our attempts to make peace on our own, we will never do it. Mankind will never be able to find this peace with God on his own. It's impossible. But that is exactly where the gospel of Genesis 3 comes into play. Because these are all the vast and very serious ramifications of sin. It's not just doing something naughty. It's cosmic insurrection. It's fracturing the relationship of the created order. And yet, what happens in this very moment is that this good news comes to us. Because... While we are making messes continually by pretending we can be like God, just like Adam and Eve were tempted to think, God, what does he do? He cleans up our mess by becoming like us. He does something completely opposite to the nature of sin. Because see, whereas the nature of sin is is mankind laying claim to where God is only supposed to be, God's realm, this sort of upward rebellion, the nature of the gospel is God invading man's realm. It's him coming down. It's him going to where we are. That famed preacher John Stott, he puts it like this. The concept of substitution may be said then to be at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone, and God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. This is the essence of the gospel, and it's captured in that verse that I skipped. (laughs) Verse 15. And I, God says, will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. 
it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is the first gospel. You want a very big word for it? It's called the Proto-Evangelium, which basically just means that. The first announcement of good news. The first announcement that there's going to be a second Adam. There's going to be a second man who, instead of bringing more condemnation, he's going to get rid of all of these ruinous effects. All of that fracturing of the created order. This seed of the woman is going to make right. He's going to bring it all back into balance. And no more death. He's going to bring life. Notice. Well, I'll just read them. You can write them down. We'll go to a couple passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I love how Paul uses this exact language throughout his writings. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 21 says this. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Jump down to verse 45. He talks about this first and second Adam again. And so it is written. The first Adam, man Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. There's life within those bones of Jesus Christ that he gives to us when he dies. Go to Romans chapter 5. This is where Paul sort of pulls out all the stops and talks about this at length. Notice only those two verses though. Verses 18 and 19 of chapter 5. Romans 5, 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. This is what Paul was saying. He knew exactly what was happening. That that first gospel contains all the good news we could ever wish. It's the fact that man would be saved precisely by a God who became man. And whereas Adam, the first Adam, ventured into the things above him and went into that realm of upward rebellion and he brought forth death, the second Adam would venture into the things below him, humble himself, and bring forth life. What a wonderful, wonderful piece of good news that is. And I think even more so, or perhaps not more so, but perhaps adding to the effect of this good news that's right here in the garden. If you go back to Genesis 3, look at verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. This verse speaks so much that these coats of animal skins were given to them by God. And think about this. They lived because of the shed blood of an innocent sacrifice. There, instead of fig leaves of their own making, God gives them a blood sacrifice. He gives them clothing to wear that they didn't deserve. That they didn't earn. Actually they deserve something worse. And what does God do? He clothes them. 
He gives them something that they didn't deserve. It's grace that is seen in those animals that lost their life. You see, this is what the gospel is all about. God taking our embarrassing upward fall and turning it into a great explanation of how he's going to save us. (laughs) He's going to save us by coming down and taking our condemnation. You see, again, when we fall up the stairs and we're met with laughter, that's not what God does. (laughs) He doesn't laugh at us. He comes down and tends to us. He has compassion on us. He comes down, we could say, and carries us up in his arms. You know, I have to quote Horatius Bonar. (laughs) He's one of my favorite writers, an old 18th century Scottish churchman, very strong and very forceful with with his writing. And he says this, Faith is not a climbing of the mountain, but a ceasing to attempt it and allowing Christ to carry you up in his arms. And that's exactly what's happening. Instead of clambering up the stairs to heaven, God comes down and carries us up. That's the promise of the garden, the promise of Genesis 3.15. It's the promise that he will carry us. One writer puts it like this, your life in grace is the life of a cripple on an escalator. As far as being able to walk upstairs is concerned, you are simply dead. There is nothing for you to do. But then you don't need to do anything because the divine floor walker has kindly put you on the eternally moving staircase of Jesus and up you go. (laughs) Very picturesque writing, I would say, but it gets to the heart, I think, of what we're talking about. That God comes down the stairs for us. That he gives us the assurance that grace wins this first gospel gives us exactly the victory that we need that for however tragic and however ruinous this fall was there's triumph that's going to happen because this seed is going to crush the head of the serpent and that triumph is going to outshine any tragedy of that fall and that's what we proclaim that's the very good news of the good news But Satan's already lost. Notice, there's two things before I want to close. (laughs) Firstly is this. On the very ground where Adam and Eve rebelled, that's where God gives them good news. And notice this, before he gives them judgment. In verse 15, he's giving them good news within his sort of curse of of the serpent here. But he's giving good news to his beloved creatures precisely before he gives them judgment, which I find interesting. But notice he does the same thing with the serpent. He promises his victory, even though he also assures that he himself will be bruised. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The triumph of the cross and the empty tomb, or I should say it this way, the triumph of the empty tomb outshines the tragedy of the cross right in this verse. You will do something, do something to that seed, Satan, but it will not last because he's going to crush your head. And he's promising this right here. It's the promise if you trace that word seed throughout the Old Testament. 
You'll find it everywhere. All throughout the ages, the people of God were holding on, clinging to the promise of the seed that would come and crush the serpent's head. And once and for all, bring back the glory of Eden. And my friends, that's the man Jesus. The King Christ. And we're longing for that day. That day that's coming when, yes, he will finally, once and for all, crush his head. And forever we'll be with him in Eden-like glory. I'm longing for that day, longing for that day when we will never be separated from him ever again. This is the good news of mankind's upward fall. (laughs) Precisely because God comes down to make it all right. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes.